2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall If you're a municipal leader, you know firsthand the stress and frustration when the Connecticut General Assembly doesn't pass a balanced budget on time. That's what happened in 2017.
1: After months of missed deadlines and not so friendly debate, the state officially has a budget.
2: That budget was 123 days late, and the impasse caused multiple headaches from local towns and cities scrambling to adjust their budgets to nonprofits wondering if they'd be able to keep their doors open. If the Connecticut General Assembly met year round, would that change how lawmakers conduct state business? Today, Where We Live, we're diving into that question and looking to other states whose legislatures operate differently. Later on, we're going to check in with Pennsylvania, which which has the largest full-time legislature in the country. And we know that you have an opinion on this, too. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, We wanted to start off the show learning more about how Connecticut's system came to be. So I want to welcome back into our studio Dr. Jonathan Wharton, Assistant professor of political science and urban affairs at Southern Connecticut State University, also a former research analyst in another state at the New Jersey Legislature's Office of Legislative Affairs. Jonathan, welcome back to the show. Morning,
3: Lucy. Thank you for having me.
2: So I know that you are teaching students currently at Southern Connecticut State University about uh, the formation of the Connecticut General Assembly. So tell us a little bit. Let's go back into history uh, and learn a little bit more about how our legislative branch came to be.
3: As a matter of fact, I'm teaching a Thursday night class this semester in Connecticut Politics and Administration. specifically looking at our General Assembly. I also want to say that, uh, you know, during the spring semester, we usually pay a visit up to the state legislature, up to the General Assembly, so they can kind of see it firsthand. Uh, and we open it up to all students. It's not just my class. Um, this was exactly the purpose why Southern hired me, was to look into state government on an issue like this. So I was very excited when you wanted to look into a topic like this. As you said, I worked in the um, state legislature and the Office of Legislative Services there um, in Trenton. And I saw that as well, for comparative sake. It's two very different state legislatures.
2: So, in Connecticut, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how the general Assembly uh, before it became uh, what we have today, mm-hmm. uh, what were uh, the le- what was the legislative branch uh, going on in like I guess the 1600s?
3: Well, it's very unique because you know we were one of the early state legislatures in place. Mm-hmm. Um, we you know were founded at least independently and separately than the other states and certainly not having to tie back to the original you know, we weren't a Commonwealth at least going back to England. So, And at the same time, we had something like New Haven, which was kind of an offshoot, which is very unique, too, because that was more of a theocracy. So we've had different kind of state governments, even local governments, compared to other states. But I will say that beyond the fundamental orders and our state constitution, what we had in place, we also had dual capitals. I think people forget about that, whereas Hartford and New Haven. And that really kind of speaks towards our regionalism, how unique we are. To have a state government where, you know, one year would meet in one capital and then would meet someplace else in another capital as well, that's something that speaks a lot towards Connecticut. And that kind of stands out early on in our history.
2: Uh, I have in front of me, uh, back in 1636, there was the general court. Mm-hmm. And then there were six magistrates and three member committees uh, representing settlements of Hartford, Wethersfield, and Windsor. But then the modern General, general Assembly was incorporated in the 1800s. So is that when we saw the, the upper branch and the lower branch?
3: Yes, that's at least a change. And that was a trend that many states in the area were, were going towards. <clears throat> and and it, was par- it was partly a result of what happened with the convention there in 1787 with the national government. We have to remember that even before uh, something like our Congress even invented, we already had state governments and state legislatures, but they Mm -hmm. all varied radically. Um, I mean, even if you look at a state like Nebraska, where it's a Unicameral, I mean, there's only one legislative body. I mean, they're just very quirky. They're not the same, even different titles, you know, because, uh, you know, you go down to, um, you know, Maryland, for example, they have a House of Delegates. We have the House of Representatives. It's not the same thing. You go to New Hampshire, they have, you know, way more lawmakers, 400 something more. Uh, You know, compared to us. So there are these distinctions from one state to the next, even in New England state by state it's not the same which is not a good thing it's not a bad thing it's just a unique thing uh,
2: we're gonna be getting into more about uh, how different states operate their legislative branches but in the 1960s uh, there was an amendment to the Connecticut Constitution mm. uh, so that changed the apportionment of legislative districts can you tell us a little bit about that what prompted that
3: well I think a part of it was just in terms of, of finding a better way of having representatives coming from you know districts that, that make them unique and smaller at least make them a little bit more um, you know compact it was a starting point, Um, you know, and so it'd be an interesting question if we're going to ever have something like that again. Is there a moment when we need to go back and revise our state constitution and find a better or maybe a more effective way of dealing with our General Assembly? Um, Why not? I, I think it's always interesting to kind of look into what was done in the past, what can we do to recreate it, what can we do to reform it. There are measures we can look at, and certainly nearby states offer some good incentives and ideas.
2: Uh, when that change happened in the mid-'60s, uh, before that happened, small towns had a uh, major clout, and now it's uh, yes. based on population. So cities uh, are also at the table.
3: We love our home rule, you know, this notion that local government is the one directly involved, and they make a lot of those decisions. I mean, that's kind of speaks towards why we don't have a county government except for obviously the court system. We do treasure, uh, as as a Southern New England state, to have that kind of direct democracy with our representatives. So it shouldn't be surprising that we see that even with our General Assembly.
2: Uh, in, in 1971, uh, the sessions were convened annually uh, rather than every other year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the House debt at the time was also reduced uh, to the current 151 seats. Uh, when your students hear about the different changes happening uh, through Connecticut's history, uh, do they, what do they think about the, the framework that we have today?
3: They are intrigued, as, as most people would be. Why would we have a hybrid? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> why do we only meet during certain periods? Is that as effective as if we met all year long? And I always bring up to them, look, if we were a larger state like New York or California or Texas, where they were a full time state legislature, and there were more, you know, there were more issues, then maybe that was necessary. But we're a smaller, compact state, and so I guess that the big question is. How much do we change a lot of this if we do anything with it?
2: You mentioned hybrid so mm. again, this idea that instead of uh, being considered a full-time or part-time uh, we now have a hybrid system. So what does that act- actually mean? Well Jonathan? I guess
3: it's it's beyond seasonal session right I mean you know traditionally we take care of a lot of legislative uh, work primarily from January to June, sometimes into July, as we saw. I mean, obviously, even the budget last year went into October, which went beyond the state constitution when we were supposed to pass the budget. But You know, the hybrid is something where it's beyond seasonal work. It's beyond just a few months. And so that kind of makes us a standout compared to other states, the nearby states especially. In New Jersey, that tends to be a part-time legislature. Here, we're seasonal. We're meeting beyond a few months. And we are proud of of having citizen legislators where they're back in the district. They're doing a lot of the work back there. And they have full-time jobs elsewhere.
2: Uh, The National Conference on State Legislatures uh, define this hybrid as members spending more than Mm two-thirds of their time uh, working to legislate. Uh, This is where we live. Uh, Today, my in-studio guest is Dr. Jonathan Wharton, uh, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. As we talk about uh, whether uh, a legislature, such as the Connecticut General Assembly, should be full-time, some states, uh, like coming up, we're going to learn more about Pennsylvania, have a full-time legislature. Others, uh, as we heard uh, Dr. Wharton uh, mention, uh, that are hybrids, like Connecticut. Uh, you can join us, too. The number, 860 And uh, I want to bring into our conversation now a former legislator who has an opinion about how the General Assembly operates. Uh, her name is Diana Urban. Uh,
4: Diana, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. It's good to be here. Well, not I'm not actually there with you, but good to talk to you this morning.
2: Good, for, uh, good to hear you uh, on the phone with us. You're a former state representative for the 43rd House District. First elected uh, to the House in 2000 as a Republican, then joined the Democratic majority after being reelected in 2006. Uh, the past year, you decided not to seek uh, re-election. So, tell us uh, how, uh, when you look at your time in the Connecticut General Assembly, uh, did you consider yourself to be a part-time
4: legislator? I certainly did not, and I think the, you know, the difference in the perspective, I was an economics professor in my other life, so when you're looking at the legislature from your perch as a professor, I had all kinds of issues that I thought I could get done, and I could get them done rapidly, and I had a deep understanding of the economy. But when you actually become a legislator and you realize the breadth of the issues that we are facing now in the 21st century that we certainly did not face in the 18th century, it's pretty daunting when you have to be an expert or conversant with environment, energy, health care, public safety, education, infrastructure, agriculture, basis regulations, housing, aging, children. I mean, I can go on. So for me, over those 18 years, I pretty much spent an extraordinary amount of time. I was chair of the Committee on Children, and, you know, I made ends meet by doing a lot of consultant work down in uh, Washington, D.C.
2: You mentioned making ends meet, so we should bring up uh, to our listeners the base salary for uh, state lawmakers is $28,000. Now I believe there are some uh, vouchers that uh, Senate and House members uh, get that raises it to about $32,000, but uh, for the, your colleagues who are, who are also in the legislature, how do they make ends meet? Is it a particular profession that is drawn uh, to becoming a state lawmaker, Diana?
4: Yeah, I think that it's, if you're in a profession, for instance, you're a lawyer and you have others that can cover for you when you're at the legislature, I think it makes it a lot more, a lot easier for you. Um, unfortunately, I would have loved to have continued teaching at uh, Three Rivers and Yukon, but we are not allowed to teach at our state universities in Connecticut, even though in other states that's welcome. So, yeah, I think it's people who have are in an area where they can have coverage, or, you know, it's retired people who feel like they want to uh, serve the state. But I really, really believe that it would behoove us to start to look at making our legislators full-time.
2: So has there been support for that in your time as a, a legislator, again, in the Connecticut General Assembly? This has come up in the past, but what, what did your uh, the majority of your colleagues think about that, making the General Assembly possibly a full-time legislature?
4: Well, Lucy, no, I think it's really that balancing act when uh, Jonathan brought up the citizens' legislature and that people like the idea that it's a citizens' legislature and that we're back in our districts doing district work. Well, I can tell you that my job there, pretty much I was full-time, and I was still back in my district doing my district work diligently. So I do think that there's that element of the fact that you're a citizens' legislature and You have sort of boots on the ground in your district or you're a business owner in your district or a lawyer in your district that you're getting the full impact of the policies that we're passing. But I would balance that with what i already expressed, which is the complexity, the sheer complexity of the issues that we're facing today. Pick up your newspaper and almost everything that you're seeing, your state legislature is having an impact and trying to solve.
2: Um, You mentioned complexity, Diana, because, again, uh, the General Assembly is technically a a part-time legislature. Do you feel like your colleagues have enough time to research bills before they vote on them?
4: No, I don't. And I also think that one of the issues that would really change things, which is something I pushed my entire time in the legislature, was data-informed decision-making. And I had limited success with getting what we called results-based accountability done in appropriations. I was able to get it done on my own committee, the children's committee. We do have a children's report card in Connecticut. That's legislatively led. We're the only state in the country that has a legislatively led report card. But even there, Lucy, when I could show you the data as to how a program should continue or not, you're still going to get that pushback that people like the program, or it's a program in somebody's district, or, you know, there are myriad reasons where we don't want to embrace data-informed decision-making.
2: Uh, This is where we live. Uh, Today, we're exploring the idea of whether Connecticut's General Assembly should be full time. On the phone with us, Diana Urban, former Connecticut State Representative for the 43rd House District. And in studio, Dr. Jonathan Wharton, who's Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. You can join our conversation too. the number 860-275-7266. Do you feel like as a state resident, you would be better served if the General Assembly met year round and with a full time job? Higher pay? Or do you think that that would be uh, a waste of, of uh, dollars? You can join us. We know you have an opinion out there. Again, the number 860 275 Jim's calling from Windsor Locks. Jim, go ahead.
5: Yeah, I'd like to ask the professor this question, because a lot of numbers get thrown around out there. And, um, uh, you know, people say, well, it's only $28,000 a year. But uh, can he clarify and give us the exact numbers as to uh, what they give for a transfert- transportation allotment? And they get an ex- uh, another, I, I heard, another $3,000 if they're a committee chairman. The uh, transportation allotment, I believe, is $5,000. And they also are invested with, as a state employee after 10 years. And on the final thing is they also get State of Connecticut Health Insurance which is about $30,000 a year. So it's not really true to say it's a $28,000 a year when you add them all up. It's close to $62,000 a year.
2: So Jim's making the point. Fringe benefits uh, definitely make up for that base pay. I want to have both our guests actually weigh in to your question, Jim. First, uh, Dr. Wharton.
3: Yes, actually, um, he's he's on it. Uh, That's something I have been asking my students over and over again. Is that a concern? Not just the mileage and the benefits, but also these bonuses. Um, Judge Satter wrote a book called Under the Gold Dome, which is a legendary book on Connecticut, and certainly Alan Rosenthal, a professor of mine at Rutgers who does state legislatures, also brought out these concerns in Connecticut. Often what happens with these bonuses, and I'd love to hear from Diana Mm -hmm. since she was obviously a lawmaker, um, these bonuses are tied in also to the party leaders. Oftentimes, yes, chair positions um, but also these deputy uh, leadership positions, there are these little bonuses, anywhere from two to $6,000, and they really do add up. And so this is kind of an incentive that's tied back to the leadership so you can gain kind of favorability with the leaders. And so oftentimes it's tied to that. And it can often get a little messy with allegiances, as you can imagine, favoritism among the lawmakers. So beyond the finances, I'd also be concerned about the political ties of some of these bonuses and incentives that, that Jim brought up could be disconcerting, at least, for leadership. But I'd love to hear from Diana in terms of if she got any of these bonuses or people were concerned about it even in the General Assembly.
2: Diana, how do you respond to uh, Jim from Windsor Locks?
4: Well, uh, hi, Jim. And I also would just like to verify what Jonathan has said when he talks about the leadership things. Yes, I got a bonus as a committee chair because I was chair of the Committee on Children, so that my responsibilities are in excess. Uh, My cognizance was Department of Children and Families, so you can well imagine the type of work that I had to do with our commissioners and our deputy commissioners and our online workers. So the $4,000 that I got to be a committee chair in no way compensated me for the amount of time that I put into it. But I absolutely agree with Jonathan on some of the leadership perks which are really exactly what he was talking about, perks. Uh, and I would say that the, the being vested has been changed to 15 years. You have to be at 15 years service before you're vested. But I'm not going to argue with you, Jim, about the benefit of having that health care. Uh, and I wish that we could do that health care for all of our residents of Connecticut. And we have introduced bills to try to change that system, to have people be able to buy into husky or, all kinds of ways to get people to health care. Um, but yet again, I do go back to Jonathan. You hit the nail on the head with some of those, uh, some of those perks.
2: This is where we live. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Martha's calling from New London. Uh, Martha, I understand that you uh, uh, ran for state senate. Uh, tell us about uh, your experience and uh, in terms of when we're talking about uh, the legislature being full-time or part-time, is this the job if you had won, you would have been able to, to, to be able to work at this and still make ends meet? Hi.
5: Yes. Thank you for um, taking my call. My name is Martha March. I was not successful in the um, District 20 race, but I am a visiting nurse, uh, the mother of four. I'm 55, single. Um, I actually had to go per diem just in order to run for uh state senate. It was very difficult and cost me quite a bit of money, but it was the best experience, one of the best experiences of my life. And um, when I run again in 2020, I'm now confident that I can run, but what I'm nervous about is how will I be able... To also be a nurse. Um, You know, my employer hopefully will work with me, but they don't have to. I'll I'll lose short-term disability, vacation time, and you should not have to be a lawyer or a business owner or a retired person or order to run and serve our state.
2: Well, Martha, thank you for your call. Uh, Also on the line with us now is State Representative Doug Dubitsky. Uh, Welcome to our show, Representative Dubitsky.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a very interesting and timely topic you're speaking about.
2: So tell me a little bit more about your, what are your thoughts on whether the General Assembly should be full-time, and what have you done about it?
1: Well, I have actually introduced a bill uh, to make the legislature full-time. I've also introduced a bill to make the legislature truly part-time, and my, my feeling is it should be one or the other, this sort of hybrid system where we're really full-time, um, part of the year and then sort of part-time the rest of the year with full benefits but very low pay it just makes it very, very difficult for people with real jobs to take this job. So my feeling is that you know somebody who's a plumber, somebody who is an electrician, somebody who works in an office, who works nine to five, there's no way that they could do this job as, as uh, Representative Urban said and as Jonathan said, you know, it really is difficult for somebody who, who works for a living to do this. And that, that means that only, the only people up here are essentially retirees, uh, people who have their own businesses, or the independently wealthy.
2: Uh, Representative Dubitsky, uh, how do you make it work?
1: Well, I am an attorney. I can <laughs> You're one of the knowledge. attorneys. Okay. <laughs> I am. Yeah, and and, and it, it uh the our, our current system makes it so there are too many attorneys up here that have their own practices. There are too many business owners and there are too many retirees and rich people. And there aren't and and we uh you know as a as a subgroup of society are basically making laws for everybody else and they can't take the job. So let's make it part-time, where somebody can really do their regular job, come up here, be a citizen legislator, and go home with no benefits. Or let's make it full-time, where somebody who's got a regular job could decide, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this instead and well, to take this as a job, one or the other. I really don't care which one. I prefer the part-time, but if they want to make it full-time, that's fine, too.
2: Representative Dubitsky, thanks for giving us a call. Uh, We're going to have a go to break pretty soon, but Diana Urban, I wanted you to respond. What do you think would be fair pay, um, having worked uh, in the assembly for 18 years, uh, for your colleagues that are are still there?
4: Well, if I was, you know, it it depends, uh, Lucy, whether we're being full-time or really. And I I do think, you know, Doug and I are Representative Dubitsky, and I rarely agree. But when we do agree, we agree strongly. So I agree with him that it should either actually be part-time or it should actually be full-time. If we were actually part-time, what we're getting now is sufficient, but we are not actually part-time. So going to full-time, I look at New York, I look at Pennsylvania, I look at Massachusetts and the salaries that are there. So, you know, I would be thinking somewhere in the realm of 80000 as a full-time legislator so that I could do that full-time, um, that, would, you know, that would be the place that, that I would come from. But I also think that it's going to be the one thing that I didn't hear Doug say and why I really do push for full-time is the sheer complexity of the issues, the fights that are out there right now. We're fighting about tolls. We're fighting about opioids. The health care question that Jim brought up, They're just the roads, transportation, the trains, the train schedule, shoreline east. These are things that we're dealing with on a continual basis. And if you are not conversant with that subject, how can you make an informed vote on that subject?
2: Dr. Jonathan Wharton, professor at Southern uh, Connecticut State University. Um, Can you respond to uh, Diana and Representative uh, Dubitsky's points?
3: Uh, yes. And, and I wanted to kind of chime in, too, on, on what he had to say, because one thing we forget is the the fact that early on, a lot of these lawmakers, citizen lawmakers, are actually farmers. You know, they're involved in agriculture. So that kind of explains the seasonal and the concerns around that. And he brings out a good point. These now are mostly business people and obviously uh, lawyers. Uh, and And that is a concern. But I'm still con- – at the end of the day, can we afford to pay uh, these lawmakers any more money? We're financially strapped in this state. I mean, we're dealing with over $2 billion now that's going to be owed in the next year or so. Uh, and so I don't know if this is now – if the time is ripe, you know, to use a legal term.
2: We're going to continue our discussion after the break. But I do want to thank Diana Urban, again, former Connecticut State Representative for the 43rd District. Thanks for calling in today. We appreciate it, Diana.
4: Well, it was a pleasure. But I would say one more thing to Jonathan. If they had done my results-based accountability, Jonathan, we would have gotten rid of programs that don't work. We would have been (laughs) all set. So you and I need to have lunch.
3: Absolutely. You tell me the (laughs) day and I'll be there. All right.
2: We got to go. But thanks again, Diana. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Dr. Jonathan Wharton will stay with us as we explore legislatures in other states. And what's your take? Would you support the idea of a full-time legislature in Connecticut? Would you consider running for office if it was a year-round job with better pay? We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. Find us at Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Should Connecticut make its legislature full-time? Do you think state lawmakers would be more effective? Stephen on Twitter writes, yes, go full-time. There are too many budget economic issues in Connecticut that deserve the attention of a full-time legislature. Dozens of reasonable bills get killed because of how little time they get plus all that horse trading that goes on. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Uh, but we want you to hear from you as well. You can join our conversation, 860 275 We know there are big differences nationwide with how the legislative branches operate. So for more, joining our conversation is Ann Bowman, Hazel Davis and Robert Kennedy Endowed Chair at Texas A&M's University's Bush School of Government and Public Service. And welcome to our show. Uh, Good morning. Thank you. Also with us is Dr. Jonathan Wharton, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. So Anne, you're based in Texas, which we know has a much bigger population than Connecticut. Our producer um, says that you could fit 48 Connecticut's into your state. Tell us about the Texas legislature, because again, a very large state, but not a full-time legislature. That's correct. Uh
0: Texas is a large state, and we have 150 state representatives, 31 state senators, and uh, the legislature meets once every two years for 140 days. So it is, in fact, uh, uh, part-time in terms of, uh, of, of the, the demands on uh, lawmakers uh, with regard to time. Uh, they are paid $7,200 a year uh, for, their, for their service. Oh, so it is uh, definitely uh, not
2: a full-time legislature. So um, how does anything get accomplished? I'm curious about uh, how that works for Texas. Well, um, uh, let me first say that
0: there are only three other states that, that meet biennially like Texas does, and uh, uh, they're, they're substantially smaller states. But uh, the way the legislature gets things done is by having a fairly robust uh, staff uh, the Texas legislature is very well staffed in terms of full-time permanent positions, uh, with, uh, various legislators in committees. There's a, you know, a House research office, a Senate research office. So there are, um, uh, there is a large number of, um,
2: of, of, of,
0: staff, uh, that assist legislators and do a lot of the research work when the legislature's not in session.
2: That's interesting that you bring that point up. I wanted to go to our in-studio guest, Dr. Jonathan Wharton. So this idea that um, even if the legislators aren't meeting uh, year-round, they've got a robust staff uh, to support the work and to help them be uh, well-researched.
3: That's been a concern, actually, not even so much in, in Connecticut, but in most state legislatures. And I think in New Jersey, at least I saw that you know, up front, being a uh, nonpartisan staff member of the Office of Legislative Services. So the professor brings up a good point on that. Um, you know, at what point in Connecticut, at least, we do seasonal staff where we hire at least temporary staff for a few months. And it's not the bulk of the staff, but it's a good number of the staff to deal with the bill writing and the drafting and the research. So you have to wonder, do we bring on more people, what she is suggesting? It's a good question. It's something that, that I often wonder about.
2: Uh, Ann, I'm curious, uh, has there been debate about whether Texas should go full-time?
0: Uh, only only quietly. There is not much enthusiasm among the public for uh, for a full-time legislature uh, kind of using uh, that earlier Jeffersonian model of, uh, of people getting back out into the into the community and learning what the concerns of the public might be, and then bringing those concerns with them to the legislature, and the argument being that if you uh, spend all your time in the state capitol, you lose that connection uh, with the public. There has been some discussion about raising the, the, the pay of legislators, and um, the last time that issue came up it was uh, it was uh pushed back down so um it so this the seventy two hundred dollars a year has been in place for quite a while and i should also mention though that legislators do get a uh... fairly decent sized uh, per diem as well um, uh... when they are doing legislative work so they they do work in the interim i mean they will they will go to the state capitol in austin and uh... uh... work with a committee or um, uh... work with their staff So they do get uh, a per diem as well as their $7,200 a year salary.
2: And I'm curious, we heard uh, the point brought up uh, last segment about there's only particular professions uh, that can handle Connecticut's uh, uh, two-thirds schedule uh, and still make ends meet. Uh, Many lawmakers here are attorneys. When we look at Texas lawmakers at $7,200 a year for being public servants, what are they doing uh, for their full-time job? Oh, they
0: are. They're yes. They're uh, they all are um, actively engaged in uh, other work for the most part. We do have a few retirees, but uh, uh, even calling yourself a full-time legislator would not be a popular position to take in Texas. So, um, so, so yeah. We uh, a large number of attorneys and business people, uh, uh, some teachers, uh, folks who work in state government who then have to. Um, uh resign their positions as state government workers to to become when if they were elected to the legislature um so so yes they are employed elsewhere and that raises one of the other issues which is you know how do you how do you use that expertise that they may bring from their professions without presenting conflicts of interest
6: now,
2: um, again, on the phone, with this is Ann Bowman, Hazel Davis and Robert Kennedy Endowed Chair in Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. As we talk about uh, whether legislatures should be full-time, uh, specifically uh, in Connecticut, not a full-time legislature, I'm wondering in your research, Anne, have you been able to measure whether if uh, the states that have full-time legislature, uh, legislatures like California, Michigan, uh, New York, are they more productive or effective?
0: uh that's um kind of in the eye of the beholder i suppose but uh, uh one i had a group of students do some research on on this question and they used a very uh i would probably say uh, maybe superficial measure of of productivity uh they used number uh, they used percentage of bills uh introduced that were ultimately passed uh and they and they did find uh perhaps uh well they did find in in some states at least uh, a higher proportion of bills introduced that were ultimately passed by the end of the session. Uh you know the challenge with a measure like that is that it it doesn't capture the substance of the work or or anything like that it's just raw number of bills and and whether they pass or not. Um but the other way to think about it is whether those more full-time legislators serve as kind of um leaders in, among other states and whether the things they do uh, in terms of passing uh, uh, legislation, adopting public policy, whether that actually ends up diffusing, uh, spreading to other states. And you do find some of that. The, you know, in, in a lot of the aggregate research that is done, the variable uh, legislative professionalism, which is, typically means full-time legislature and, and staff and, and salary, um, that is oftentimes an explanation for states that do more innovative things. Uh, That are maybe ahead of the curve on public policy issues. Uh, So there is that consideration as well, not only the the amount of legislation that is introduced and passed, but also um, whether it serves as uh, an indicator to other states of, you know, good idea, things we should do here.
2: Dr. Jonathan Wharton's in studio with me, uh, professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University. Uh, How do you respond uh, to Ann's point about um, how some of these uh, states that are um, full-time may be more innovative in in the kind of research they're doing before they pass policy?
3: Well, I love that model that she put to the test for their students in terms of uh, using that and passing legislation and seeing the effectiveness of it. I also want to add in there, I think, especially in Connecticut, our budget, is always an issue. And we saw that, obviously, last year. It got delayed and delayed and delayed. And one does have to wonder if you were a full-time legislature, whether, in fact, you could pass those budgets in a timely fashion as opposed to what happened last year and what could happen in the future. So I wonder, in terms of testing that model out and doing comparative analysis on that, whether we could be any more effective as a full-time you know, legislature, whether we could really address some of these thorny issues like the economy and the budget.
2: And what's your take? Is it good to have a, a particular hard deadline to get something like important passed like a state budget?
0: That's a really interesting question, and there's been some research on that. And it's kind of a question of who blinks first. I mean, uh, obviously, to run the executive branch, you need a budget. Although Illinois, which is not a good example of a of a well-functioning state, but but Illinois did that for for a couple of years, and 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 not very effectively. You do need a budget to to function. Um, there's really an interesting question about the the tension between the governor and the legislature and one of the things about um, in support of of a more full time or what is oftentimes called a professionalized legislature is the ability to go toe-to-toe with the governor on numerous issues including the budget Um, and and, and a full-time legislature holds more cards vis-a-vis the governor uh, than a part-time legislature uh, typically does Now, the question of hard deadlines is an interesting one because um, uh, what we've seen in in a number of states is they actually do adjourn. Some of these part-time states, they actually do adjourn without having adopted the budget, Mm -hmm. and then then they're brought back in special session to focus solely on the budget. And sometimes these special sessions become more special session and an additional special session and you're suddenly your part-time legislature is spending a whole lot more time in the, in the state capitol.
2: Oh, yes. There's a lot of frustration Ooh, here. I was to say, again. welcome <laughs> to Hartford. That's exactly
3: it, Professor. <laughs> yeah. oh,
2: well, one uh, thing I didn't get a chance to bring up with our former uh, lawmaker who was on, Diana Urban, um, is the question of when uh, in the General Assembly, they, it's not a full-time legislature. They have to rely on outside jobs uh, to pay their bills besides being uh, a, a state lawmaker. But the question of conflicts of interest that arise, Uh, there have uh, been reports uh, here in Connecticut uh, with um, uh, House Speaker, former House Speaker Simowitz, who uh, works for labor. But yet he's also in a leadership role within our Connecticut General Assembly. Um, The the, the thorny uh, questions that arise because of that, Uh, Jonathan.
3: Yeah, I mean, that obviously was actually a a test case. It was a number of cases that came up, at least as a result of that in terms of his conflict of interest and others too. I mean, you know, and and so one has to wonder where are those allegiances at least? Um, And and that's a thorny issue. That's a tough one. Uh, And in Connecticut, um, and I'd love to hear the professor's response on this too, we have a number of our lawmakers that are tied to unions. And so one has to wonder really where are their allegiances. I mean, if I could do a shout out to my own state senator who actually oddly... Lobbies for me and uh, my uh, professor union. Um, you know Gary Winfield, who who plays that role too, in terms of being you know having tool hats. And I wonder how much of conflict or concern that could be compared to other states.
2: And um, how do you respond to uh, again? Would a full time legislature minimize conflicts of interest depending on a lawmaker's uh, full time job? Uh, in theory, yes,
0: uh, it would. Um, and and so. Uh, you know, if you if if you look at something like uh, the California legislature, which is designed to be full time, um, although they they may not meet year round quite to the extent that say uh, Pennsylvania does, but still um, uh, they're paid over $100,000 a year now, and the argument is that um, that that should be sufficient for uh, for an individual to devote his or her full time to uh, the legislative tasks uh, uh, that await. Um, yeah, in, in theory, yes. In practice, it's kind of an interesting question. I mean, one of the things you see is that legislators who do have these outside jobs in part-time legislatures, or, or in effect full-time jobs um, uh, elsewhere, bring that expertise with them to the committees they serve on. So you who do you put on your education committee but former educators or current educators, uh, school teachers, principals, superintendents, uh, banking committee, you have bankers on that. Uh, judicial committee you have lawyers on that. So uh that, that citizen legislature, the part-time legislature, that model typically does raise these questions about kind of you know lobbying on behalf of what it is you do, potentially. So so what most states have done, and I'm sure Connecticut has done this as well, is uh adopt fairly uh strict uh conflict of interest rules that require a lot of disclosure. Um, about what you are um you know where you are getting income where your sources of income what your sources of income are and um and how you spend your how you spend money so there are efforts made to um uh, to attempt to address some of these potential conflicts of interest that arise.
2: Uh, Jonathan, Anne brought up uh, strong ethics uh, laws. I'm not sure, though, in Connecticut, if it's really that strong. It's really up to the lawmaker to recuse themselves if they, they feel there is a conflict?
3: I was about to say self-reporting is a big aspect of it. And then you have to throw in the, the dynamic of donations. I mean, that's oftentimes a concern, too, making sure that there's no real conflict. And, and that we, we tend to, you know, um, suggest also reporting a lot of those donations. Now, whether they get enforced or not from our state election commission is another story, right? It could be a slap on the wrist. It could be a fine. There are a couple of different ways in which they can kind of leverage that if that were possible. But in terms of what the professor brought up, I'm still back on California. Oftentimes, a lot of people look to California as kind of the gold standard in terms of state government because they have that full-time legislature. They tackle a lot of big issues. They're a large state. And as she said, the salaries are significantly more. I, I do want to say that in, you know, as a, as a state and local politics professor, uh, a lot of us in the subfield at least look to California because they're a unique state government. They really take their state government seriously. Uh, unfortunately, in, in a state like Connecticut and other states, maybe not as much. I think a lot of um, citizens don't pay attention actively to a lot of those uh, state mm-hmm. issues that's affecting the state legislature compared um, to California. And maybe a part of it is the media is oftentimes focused in California on the state legislature. We don't mm-hmm. see that kind of emphasis in a state like Connecticut, unfortunately.
2: What about uh, our neighbor, uh, New York State? Just they, They're in the news because they've just approved a pay boost
3: for that's the right. lawmakers
2: to $110,000, set to rise to – Hold on to your hat, $130,000 exactly. by 2021, I mean.
3: <laughs> right. And, and then the other thing is that look how much attention is focused, by again, on the media, on Albany, right, because of all the scandals they've had. Uh, and, and so, you know, there, there's that concern in New York of of where, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Should lawmakers spend more time in the Capitol or Albany? That's oftentimes an issue that goes back and forth with a full-time state legislature, whether it is in Sacramento or Albany. If you spend that much time as a full-time lawmaker in, uh, you know, your state Capitol, are you going to be prone to more lobbying? Are you going to get more donations from unions and lobbyists and other organizations? Are they going to really spend that much time back in the district? And I think that's why in, in a New England state like Connecticut, we pride ourselves in the sense that these lawmakers don't spend forever in Hartford.
2: Uh, you're listening to Where We Live. Uh, we have time for one more quick call. Representative Christine Palm, uh, one of the newcomers to the Connecticut General Assembly, is calling in. Uh, thanks for for calling in today, Representative Palm. And what's your point that you want to bring up?
7: Hey, Lucy. Thanks. Um, My point is that the unpredictability of a part-time legislature is very hard, particularly on women, uh, women with young children. I happen to have grown children and a very supportive feminist husband who covers for me when I can't do childcare, as it's still needed occasionally. Um, But for younger women with with young children, you need to have a partner of some kind. And the unpredictability of the schedule is very hard for part-time workers. Um, You know, we we have we tend to try to get Monday, Wednesday, Friday committees or Tuesday, Thursday committees. But since I took this job, I've been up here every day and and the business that I founded a year ago has has uh, languished as a result. So it's if I didn't have that domestic backup, I don't know how this would be possible. And I think if we are trying to reform government so that it is more accessible to all kinds of people, we need to think about the effect on uh, young parents.
2: Representative Palma, thank you for calling in a very important point. uh, uh, Ann, uh Bowman uh, out of uh, Texas A&M, uh, what are the demographics in Texas uh, in terms of, are there a lot of, of women that are able uh, to uh, be lawmakers?
0: Increasingly, there are more women uh, in the legislature, but Texas is not on the leading edge of number of women, uh, proportionately, uh, that you would find, say, in a state like Colorado or Washington or some of those states that are really... Uh, led the way on this but the but the issue is, is is real i mean one of the points of of in in favor of increasing the salary for legislators is to allow folks uh more people to run for the legislature and uh be able to support themselves by being legislators as opposed to uh having to you know, uh, uh be independently wealthy or have a, a you know a high value job on the outside, whatever it might be so uh, di- diversification in in terms of the composition of the legislature has always uh been an issue in terms of whose whose views seem to be being represented and uh um and and how successfully those views are being conveyed so yes uh that 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 certainly scheduling is is certainly an issue the way it's handled in Texas is uh they typically uh they're, they're until the session really gets going they typically don't meet on Fridays uh to uh, give folks long weekends to go back uh, to go back home
2: Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Ann Bowman again, uh, Hazel Davis and Robert Kennedy Endowed Chair at Texas A&M's Bush School of Government and Public Service. It was a pleasure talking with you. We hope to have you back. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed chatting with you as well. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpa I also want to thank Dr. Jonathan Wharton, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Lucy. Coming up, we're going to check in with one more state to find out how they do it. It's going to be Pennsylvania, which has the largest full-time state legislature in the country. Does that mean it's more productive and there's lots of citizen satisfaction in their lawmakers? Not exactly. We'll right after the break, and we can hear from you, too, on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. We've been talking today, learning about how Connecticut's General Assembly came to be and whether state legislatures should be full-time. We wanted to check in on Pennsylvania. Uh, Katie Myers on the phone with us, Capitol Bureau Chief at Public Radio Station WITF-FM in Harrisburg. Katie, welcome to our show.
6: Thanks for having me.
2: Uh, We invited you because Pennsylvania, as we found out in our research, has the largest full-time legislature uh, in the nation. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the breakdown. How many lawmakers and what do they get paid?
6: Sure. So we have uh, 253 total. Um, That's 50 in our Senate and 203 in the House of Representatives. Um, and they get paid, they get uh, yearly salary adjustments. Uh, there's sort of a cost of living adjustment lately. Uh, so as of uh, the beginning of this year, they're making um, over $88,000. It's 88610 uh, total. So I believe that makes us with New York just having uh, increased to theirs, the third highest paid. Although until they did that, we were the second paid after uh, California.
2: When we uh, say full-time, what does that mean? Are they in session year-round, or how many months are we talking about?
6: Sure, yeah, that's kind of a funny question, because uh, they are not in Harrisburg all the time. I mean, they're here quite a lot, and they're here throughout the year but um, uh, no, they do a lot of stuff in their own districts. So all of our lawmakers have separate district offices. Some of the ones in bigger districts even have more than one in various places. And uh, so when they aren't here trying to pass bills, they uh, are doing what they call constituent services. So they'll be, you know, doing often as fundraisers, often it's being lobbied by people. Often it really is, you know, going to events in their districts and meeting with their constituents. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, you know, they'll come a lot. They're called back into session often, for instance, when we have like budget impasses, things like that. So it's flexible and the schedule can change at any time. But uh, no, they are not here all the time.
2: So uh, one of the points raised earlier was with uh, Connecticut's uh, model, the citizen legislature, uh, being able to have time to to speak with constituents. That's something that that, that does happen in Pennsylvania despite being full time.
6: Oh, yeah, yeah. They're just you know, paid for it like it's a full-time job. And a lot of them, I mean, to be fair, do look at it that way. I think, um, you know, I'm not exactly sure. And it's hard to tell. Maybe you can get into that. But it's hard to tell um, exactly how much work people do and what the outcome is. That's just a very difficult thing to measure. But, um, you know, that is technically that's considered part of the job here. Yes.
2: And what about um, Pennsylvania residents? What's the satisfaction in uh, the job their lawmakers are doing? Do they feel like uh, this full time legislature with better pay is justified?
6: Um, I think when you ask uh the average person and you let them know, for instance, um because not everybody pays very, very close attention to this stuff, you tell them how much Pennsylvania lawmakers are paid and uh you tell them, you know, that they're here all year. Um, what they're gonna, you know, flash to is the fact that in Pennsylvania we do have some pretty uh Significant standoffs almost every year uh, over our budget. We have a divided government. Uh, the current governor is a Democrat. The legislature, both chambers, are um, helmed by Republicans. And so, what, the big stuff that comes out of the legislature often is that they can't agree on very basic functions of government. And so, you know, putting out that all together, I think a lot of people, you know, their knee-jerk reaction would be to say, "Yeah, these guys aren't doing much. Like we have to get them out of there, or at least reduce the size." and uh, you guys have been talking a lot about full time versus part time and those bills do come up in Pennsylvania pretty frequently the ones that have gotten the farthest for us though have been ones to actually just shrink the numbers um we had this would be a constitutional amendment in Pennsylvania and so that means it would have to go to voters as a referendum and we had one that did pass the house and senate one chamber one session but then it would have to go for a second session and they kind of whiffed on it the second time so it never ended up going anywhere And that's tough. I mean, I think despite, like, you know, even if a lot of people do think it would be better for the legislature to be smaller it's up to the legislature to vote to shrink their own numbers, and that's just one of those things. It's just highly unlikely to happen.
2: Yeah, why would they want to do that? <laughs>
6: right, exactly. And some people do. To be fair, a lot of people, would, a lot of the lawmakers at least say that they would be open to doing something. But, you know, that can always change if it looks like their district is going to go away.
2: That's true. And we were hearing that uh, despite being full-time, there's still gridlock on important issues like mm. the budget, something that uh, Connecticut struggles with every year.
6: <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of the states, you know, they're in that same position. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think gridlock, especially, again, if you have a divided government and uh, a significant deficit, like we often do, um, especially, you know, post-recession, that's not something that uh, can be attributed to the size of the legislature necessarily. And and it's funny, like, when you look into this, it's just – You know, it's hard to assign productivity to the number of people in the building. Some people would say more people make them less productive. Some people would say the opposite. Um, But what it really often seems to come down to anyway, um, as far as I've been able to tell, is what the constituents expect. So in Pennsylvania, I mean, we have you know relatively small ratios. Um, representatives have um, 254,000 approximately people in their districts, or actually rather 62,000 for representatives, 254 for senators, and that's a, a pretty small population to represent as one person. So um, I, a lot of people do like direct service with constituents and are able to have a relatively face-to-face relationship with some of the people in their districts. And so, you know, that is something a lot of constituents do value, I think. And that's one of the things that lawmakers will point to in saying that, you know, what we're used to and what our constituents expect is that they're able to have that sort of relationship.
2: Well, Katie uh, Meyer, thanks again for a perspective from Pennsylvania Capital Bureau Chief at WITF-FM in Harrisburg. Thanks, Thanks Katie. Uh, I want to thank our producer today, Scott Breedy. Also, our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Special thanks to Lydia Brown on the phones. I'm Lucy Nopithanshul. As always, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.